Welcome back, Dr. David White here for CRIM 260. And in this episode, reviewing chapter 13 of our text on uh, juvenile court processes. And so as of 2011 anyway, uh, there were approximately 1.2 million delinquency cases referred to juvenile courts. This number has decreased about 34% since 1997 and when juvenile crime peaked. Uh, it's worth noting that juvenile crimes peak later than adult offenses. I think we've covered this at least one other time. But uh, adult offenses peaked around 1992 or 93. Uh, this is important because part of the overall rise in crime leading up to the early 1990s involved the explosion of the crack cocaine market. Uh, as older drug dealers were arrested and incarcerated, this opened the market for younger uh, juvenile drug dealers who were more violent. The violence of younger sort of punk drug dealers in the 1990s uh, eventually caused communities uh, to uh, take a greater role in saying enough. Right, this uh, mixed, uh, of course, with efforts to improve community policing as well as more aggressive order maintenance policing strategies targeting, targeting uh, lower level juvenile offenders, notably uh, jumping subway turnstiles in New York City. Uh, that was their approach at first. Uh, and this is why juvenile crime uh, sort of generally peaked after adult offending. But again, it's important to recognize that the overall uh, crime today is less than half of what it was back in those days. Uh, and uh, part of that peak you can see in the homicide numbers. And so if you want to go back and look at uh, that, you can. Uh, one book on that is by a gentleman by the name of Blumstein. And so uh, I'm talking about the crime drop in the United States. Uh, in courts, uh, just like in adult court, you have uh, the same basic actors in juvenile the defense attorney, in some cases public defenders paid by the state, represent young offenders and in some cases uh, uh, for abuse and, and abuse and neglect cases. Uh, there may also be an appointed attorney that represents the interest of the child. Uh, not them as a defendant, but basically acting on their behalf uh, in the absence of other reasonable adult supervision. And so in this case, uh, it is known as a guardian ad litium, guardian ad litium. Uh, when a uh, attorney has been appointed uh, to represent the child's interest. The prosecutor is responsible for representing the state. And most cases uh, involving juveniles and juvenile court remain at the district or at the county level. And so the presence of the prosecutor has not always been uh, the case in juvenile court. As for uh, the first 60 years of its experience, the juvenile court did not take on the same adversarial approach to fact-finding uh, that you see now, but focused on the treatment of uh, the child. Today, it's similar to adult court. Rather than taking a more social service-oriented approach, uh, prosecutors exercise uh, serious amounts of discretion, in most cases with the power to decide what to prosecute and what to reject. Um, in juvenile court, they have to find that balance between trying to help wayward youth and, and prosecuting them as offenders and holding them accountable. This is especially true when it comes to uh, the discretion to push or transfer or waive 
uh, also known as a bind over or removal to adult court. Uh, That's where the juvenile offender is transferred from juvenile court to the adult court, a lot of times in the hands of the prosecutor. Finally, though, there's the judge. Right? So in some states, the juvenile court judge has the authority to decide if the case is sent to adult court or if it's maintained in juvenile court. So let's look at some decision points then that are important. The decision to release or detain. Juvenile detention is, as I said in a previous uh, uh, summary, is pretty rare. Most juveniles are released to their parents or other responsible adults who agree to get the child to court at a later date. However, in serious cases, the offender uh, may be detained and the juveniles do not have the constitutional right to bail. Juveniles don't have the right to bail. It is uh, the only due process right they don't have. Some states uh, do grant juvenile bails, but others uh, and others allow the court to decide whether or not to give the offender bail or not, uh, but it's not a guarantee for them. About one out of every five delinquent cases uh, with some variation across major offense categories are detained, about 21%. From 1990 to 2011, the total number of juveniles held in short-term detention facilities actually decreased by about 15%, from about 302,800 to a little over a quarter of a million, to 256,800. The typical age of a juvenile uh, that is detained is 16, more frequently a male, and they are often charged with a public order offense. Racial minorities are heavily overrepresented in detention, especially those who are poor. According to the text, African-American youth are more likely than European-American youth to be detained prior to adjudication, 40% compared to only 22%. And so, uh, uh, important for us to note, it is uh, not until 1989 that jurisdictions uh, uh, were not allowed to house juvenile offenders in the same facilities as adult prisoners. 1989 uh, finally made that uh, an illegal practice. And so uh, the, there has also been an effort made to separate status offenders from other criminal offending juveniles. That is separating those who are just uh, charged with a status offense from those charged with other criminal offenses. When we think about the different decision points, we look at the pro process of intake, uh, the process by which a juvenile referral uh, is received and the decision made to file a petition in juvenile court or to release the juvenile or to place them on some type of supervision uh, or refer them elsewhere, right, to some sort of community-based social service program. <clears throat> we look at the diversion, and so a diversion involves officially halting or suspending a formal criminal proceeding at uh, any legally prescribed point and referring the offender to treatment or care program and uh, recommending that the person be released. Uh, that fits into this category as well under certain conditions, right? So a conditional discharge. And so uh, diversions are common for first time and low level offenders. We consider the issue of plea bargaining. So just like adult offenders, there are processes whereby the prosecutor agrees with the defense to a plea bargain. Upward of 95% of adult cases end in a plea bargain. Uh, without formal processing, without a formal trial. So the same is true uh, it, with many of these cases with juvenile offenses. 
The transfer to adult court, so all states allow juveniles to be tried as adults in criminal courts uh, through one of three ways. And so the book defines these for us. Concurrent jurisdiction, uh, where the prosecutor decides which court to file the criminal complaint in. Uh, statutory exclusion policies, which exclude certain serious offenses automatically from the juvenile court. Um, this is also sometimes the case with traffic offenses, <clears throat> which are automatically sent to adult court in Kentucky. Uh, or finally, the judicial waiver, where the decision to move the case from the juvenile court to the adult court rests in the hands of the judge. So there is a hearing to decide whether the case should be waived or not. Evidence concerning the competency of the child is considered, the seriousness of the offense is considered, etc. 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 Uh, and so, uh, in this case, there's no bright line on when, where, or why juveniles should be transferred to adult court. Uh, and these rules vary again from state to state. The number of cases transferred to adult court, though, did uh, grow rapidly between 1995 and 1994. <clears throat> so the, the book reports about an 83% increase in that time. Uh, where it peaked before starting to decline. And so between 1994 and 2011, those numbers have declined once again by 59%. And so in total, as of about 2011, about 1% of juvenile cases are waived to adult court, approximately about 5,000 cases a year. <clears throat> when we think about the trial, well, the trial process is pretty similar to adult proceedings. However, juveniles are not afforded a jury trial uh, a trial by their peers. Judge is the finder of fact and uh, the rules based on the same standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt but again in the hands of the judge. So the process is uh, not public and so they're not open to outside spectators and only those directly involved in the case are allowed in the courtroom. <clears throat> uh, aside from the trial, the disposition, uh, common dispositions include uh, uh, a night, or, well, they're included in a table on page 375 of our text, Exhibit uh, 13.4. There's an So there is a distinction between what is known as indeterminate sentencing, indeterminate sentencing, and determinate sentencing. And so indeterminate sentencing, uh, which is traditionally used in juvenile cases, where the length of time the offender was to be held was not specified, but rather decided by correctional authorities who assess the readiness of the offender to be released. And so uh, no determination made at the point that they're sentenced. It's just up to how long it may take to rehabilitate them, for example. The alternative here is determinate sentencing, which uh, specifies a, a fixed term of incarceration and uh, both are in fact still used today in juvenile sentencing, as are what's known as blended approaches that incorporate both concepts, so a certain amount of determinate sentencing followed by uh, an indeterminate period, for example. The death penalty, uh, on March 1st of 2005, the U.S. Supreme Court, in the case of uh, Roper v. Simmons, put an end to the practice of the death penalty for juveniles in the United States. And so it should be alarming that this practice persisted until the early 2000s. Uh, at the time, 21 states allowed the practice, and there were a total of 72 juveniles on death row. Between 1642 
in 2005, there was an estimated 366 juveniles that have been executed in the United States. In May of uh, 2010, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that uh, states could not subject, uh, also just as an aside here, could not subject juveniles to life sentences without parole in non-homicide offenses. And in 2012, they ruled that life sentences for homicide could not be automatically imposed, couldn't be just a determinate sentencing uh, that uh, gets imposed automatically. <clears throat> so uh, uh, confidentiality uh, in these criminal proceedings or in these juvenile proceedings uh, generally protect the juvenile, restricting the release of information, allowing access to public uh, processes as well. So just as a final aside, that's something important to remember. But uh, uh, at any rate, those are some facts and figures, of course, to remember. From Chapter 13, as always, make sure you read the text. Uh, pay attention to what we discuss in class. And if you have any questions, feel free to email them to me.